Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the overlap. I, of course, am joined by Rian. We're sitting here in very, very different physical locations as I currently speak, but we move. Rian, how you doing, buddy? It's um, I had a conversation actually with someone from from work this week about whether they prefer to be called Bud, Buddy, or neither of the two. And I think I've fallen into the trap of saying both at some point, even though I don't really like either. So I was gonna I don't say really know how I feel about it. I was gonna say they both sound pretty patronizing. They they no really do. <laughs> yeah. Like especially to a black man. Like I don't know what it is. Like <laughs> there's something about it that just even when I say it, I like I don't know. Maybe I've I've just gotten used to it. It's more like when you say it out loud. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it sounds it sounds bad when you're saying it out loud. Yeah, and I don't know why. It like, sounds like I, you're being an asshole. <laughs> it does. It does. Yeah. It's like, hey buddy, how's he like screw yeah. you? No, I, I get defensive about it. But anyway, what's <laughs> what's up? How you doing? <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure how long Ellis has had that in the like just <laughs> that scratching question. at the back of his mind for yeah, um, no, I'm I'm good. Um, I was talking about it right before we came on, but um, Elias missed the Eagles game yesterday. And whoa, whoa, I, half of it, half of it, second he, half. Yeah, fair, fair. He he missed. Uh, I guess the most depressing parts of it, which was the second <laughs> yeah. half. So fair enough to him. Yeah, um, I I got my updates about Jalen Rager uh, from Twitter, which is always a. <laughs> A cesspool of very, very emotional reactions to situations. Uh, he had a tough day. Yeah. He had the worst possible day. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I mean, that, that was kind of going to go to a, a broader thing from this weekend. Obviously, there was there weren't a lot of games going on in, in terms of the Premier League, just because as no. we'll, we'll get onto it, a, a few postponements. And then also there were what maybe two games in La Liga this weekend as well. No La right. Liga games, just Copa del Rey games. Um, I, I, and then did Villarreal play today? I think they must right? have played today. Yeah, yeah, we're recording on. Oh my god, today's Monday. I thought yeah. it was Sunday this whole time, but yes. Yeah, you're so entirely right. It, it was it was the first weekend of uh, the NFL playoffs, so that was. I, I haven't really watched this season very much outside of the Eagles games, which you know are. Yeah, its own whole thing, but um, <laughs> but it was exciting. Honestly, I think what was most exciting, or the biggest reason why this was an exciting weekend for the American football, um, the because American the betting, football. because sports betting is now legal, obviously here in the city, and I had was very much looking forward to this. <laughs> I mean. I, I had probably in total like twenty dollars <laughs> from this weekend. That was what I think. So, not, so not exactly a high roller. Not there, crazy. But, um, but either way, thinking about like most weekends, I have nothing invested in games outside of the uh, Eagles. <laughs> it was, um, it was, it was a fun way to spend the the times of the weekends are usually pretty open for us because by four o'clock, the soccer games are pretty much all over. So yeah. It was, a, it was a great way to fill the midday of the weekend. No, it's true. I mean, granted, I filled my weekend with flying um, and then now going to the beach today. So that's what I'm doing. Um, but yeah, no, your way sounds just as fine. Um, 
just a lot, a lot less fun in terms of losing money and then uh, having to sit in the cold. So yeah, yeah, this well, is me just I mean, being an outright sitting. ass. Yeah, I was gonna say I wasn't sitting outside watching any of these. No, games. I know, I know, I know. Rel- relative to where I am versus where you are, I'm just I'm I'm out really trying to be a dick, and it doesn't. I don't do it well, so I just hey, just ignore me, man. Just yeah, we're, we're I, moving I on. That's that's probably as good a segue as any. <laughs> yeah, you want to segue? All right, fine. Let's talk about let's talk about actual soccer. Let's talk about the real football, as the world calls it. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about what's going on in England, Rihanna. We got a lot of things to talk about from the Prem um, over the last week or so. Most notably, the North London Derby being postponed, a game that you and I, with a few other friends, were supposed to watch together. Um, and yes, outside in the cold, um, because that would have actually been somewhat fun. But <laughs> of course, <laughs> that game was postponed. outside. Thing. Listen, man, I'm just, I don't know how to be an asshole. We're moving on. It, tell me about the game. What? Okay. We know Arsenal submitted a bid, right? Of course, to be able to postpone or an application to postpone. After pretty, what seemed like a pretty significant amount of deliberations from the Premier League, it was postponed. The game was postponed to an unknown date. Now, this is something you and I have talked about with others, of course, kind of in depth, but I want to review kind of what the current rules are for any potential postponements of games in the Premier League. And I guess my subsequent question is more so along the lines of, is the league actually opening themselves up to kind of a, an accountability problem now by accepting specifically Arsenal's bid? Yeah, I think... To start with here, we're talking about Arsenal application of postponing games in, for the Premier League right now. Their application went out on Friday. This was day after their first leg League Cup game with Liverpool, where I think they picked up a couple injuries in that game, as well as Granite Xhaka kind of putting himself, um, just getting a red card and, and not being able to play for the next few games for Arsenal, which included this North London Derby from the rules point of view, I, nothing wrong with what Arsenal have done. The, the Premier League rules that they take into account when a team puts in an application for his postponement says that the club has to have a huge impact from COVID-19 infections um, as well as injuries and those isolating and the number of players available on the squad list at any under 21 players with appropriate experience are supposed to be eligible for playing in the Premier League games for right now while they're in this situation. And so in the situation where a club can't field 13 outfield players and a goalkeeper, either from its squad list or appropriately experienced under 21 players, the match will be postponed. And I think when you look at the the issues that Arsenal had it's extremely fair for them to put that application in what kind of puts the Premier League in a slippery slope here is that the spirit of the rule or the the intentions of the of having these rules in place in the first hand were supposed to be more focused on COVID-19 infections and you have to note that as of Arsenal's application on on Friday, there was only one 
COVID case or positive COVID case that was known. Um, I think there was some a report came out maybe the next day on Saturday. There might've been a couple more Arsenal players tested positive on Saturday, but I do think that the league is in a tough position. Um, when they kind of left themselves with a lot of leeway in these rules, as it says that a club is un, unable to field 13 outfield players and a goalkeeper, the actual circumstances that they put down are COVID-19 infections, injuries, illness, and or others isolating. So when you, they kind of throw in those few things that every team is dealing with at this point, right? Or every team has dealt with at some point in the last four weeks, let's say. Um, when you, when you kind four, of throw, four weeks, you mean, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the pandemic started. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and it has gone to the point where obviously on this new variant is far, far more infectious and teams are dealing with it even worse, um, especially since it's got the winter has come around. So yeah, at least I, I think that the league puts themselves in a really tough spot on their own. Right. And it feels like we're gonna, we are at a slippery slope now. I think maybe a couple of weeks ago, it felt like we were getting to that point. Um, especially in terms of the consistency where some teams are getting these games called off. Sometimes some teams aren't and we're, and the reasoning is not public, not always made public at least for why a game gets postponed or not. And I think that's part of where the slippery slope comes into play as well is now we're looking at a lack of consistency and transparency. And as you know, just from La Liga is, it is not the same. (laughs) This is not an issue that necessarily every team is having in, in terms of, the consistency no listen in the same way that every club in every team is dealing with injuries right every club and every team is dealing with different number of covid cases right and that's just a byproduct of unfortunately the virus right and for unfortunate circumstances luck all of those things are, are a big part of this but to your point there are really two things that stand out to me about the current rule set about the premier league and how they deal with covid infections first and foremost is that you have to apply, right? You have to apply to postpone a game, which is just a bizarre concept to me. Like there is no platform or system in place right now, or there's no protocol that says each team on a weekly basis, you know, day or whatever it is, X number of hours, days ahead of a match, submit your squad list, right? There's almost seemingly like no, there's no process for that. And when I say squad list, I don't mean just your normal squad list. I mean, Give me your injuries. Give me your COVID cases. Give me everything, illness, things like that. Um, Present all of that to the Premier League. And it should be a very binary decision based on the current rule set, if that's the case. If every team were to be able to do that, then it's like, okay, well, Arsenal in this case, right, can field 13 outfield players or they cannot. Um, That's that's kind of part of it. The second part of it, which which is even more interesting to me, is how they word the phrasing of, quote, any under 21 players with appropriate experience, end quote. Like, what does that, what does appropriate experience mean? Because I, I think it's fair to say that, like, someone who's 17 making their debut is probably not what they mean in, the, in like, just exactly. the context of that rule. Now, I think Leeds would have a different way of approaching that, that specific rule set, for example. 
But I think of, I just think about it in the context of my team, right? In terms of Barcelona, like, does that mean someone like Gavi, who's 17 and a first team starter, does he count as an appropriately experienced under 21 player? And I think you can extrapolate that now in this case to Arsenal and to basically the rest of the Premier League. At what point are there not enough under 21 players that you could just feel the team of teenagers and this will never quote unquote be a problem? You know, that that was the exact same thing that kind of was really stumping me. And, and it's great you brought it up because I was listening to a podcast earlier today and they went through the rules themselves and explained that that appropriate experience is one appear, appearance in the Premier League is one Premier League appearance um, and, and obviously being like on a professional contract, of course. So you're right. It's one point that, that was made in the, in the same thing I was listening to is, you know, now a club from earlier in the season, if they were trying to, bet in a young player or give them a chance to for whatever reason whether it was an injury before or literally to give a a player coming from their academy a chance in a game they are now kind of being penalized because that player now has whatever it is one two three even if they're just substitute appearances that player now counts towards your list of appropriately experienced under 21 so you kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of how complicated and convoluted this is getting um and not helped by the postponement that we saw this past weekend even Burnley I believe that was supposed to play tomorrow their game now also just got postponed and you're talking about a team that has now still only played 17 of their games they have not gotten to the halfway point of their season and you know they don't play in Europe, so people are not going to kind of think about this very much, but they are a team that is strictly in a relegation battle who just lost their striker to, to Newcastle. To, to Newcastle, yeah. To another relegation <laughs> rival. And I get it, they're not going to be playing. They don't have any midweek or European competitions that they're playing in right now, but for a team that is fighting for survival, there's not as you would expect, a lot of depth there to be able to deal with probably playing uh, like three or four weeks of, it may not necessarily be three or four weeks in a row, but three or four weeks of midweek games where they have to make up these, um, make up these matches. So it's, it's now also a real disservice to them. And granted, it's it's not necessarily anyone's fault, right? But again, this is where the consistency comes back into play. Yeah. I mean, it, I said this in my, but the very first thing I said, injuries and viruses, illness, like in general will be a part of the game, unfortunately, but you are, there is also that side of it where you're almost doing, you know, basically at the bottom half of the table, pretty massive disservice um, to, <laughs> to the players that they're able to field. And that has very, very real consequences, very real consequences on the financials of the club the sporting integrity of, of their results. It has massive implications. And I don't think like Rian and I are not harping on any one individual team. Like, I think that needs to be very clear. It's not about any specific club or anything like that, because every club is more than able to, I guess, submit this application for postponement, but it's more so about there being a very unclear process for 
how these kind of edge cases are dealt with. And that I think is completely opened up the Premier League to, to a lot of issues around transparency and trust. And I'll, the last thing I'll leave you with this, this thought is this is the one area in, in footballing, I guess, legislation that I will agree with Javier Tebas on in La Liga, the president of La Liga. He has made it very clear, basically in not so many terms, um, but if you cannot field X number of players, first team players, then the game will be postponed. And that's kind of about it. <laughs> so it's very, it's very black and white. Um, so it, it, I, I think it just needs to be that blatantly clear. And there will always be people who are not happy with that. I think, I think the Premier League does need to accept that there will always be people that are not actually happy with that, whatever number it might be. Um, but I think this, it just has very, very real implications, especially on the North London Derby, who, I mean, who knows when that's going to be played now. Yeah. And, and look, I think the other thing that sucks and it's kind of tough here is that on one side of this, us fans who were sitting at home ready to watch that game. Yes. We're going to probably, we're going to get a better game out of this. Like the next time these teams play, the, there will be more players available. There'll be, it'll be a better game on the field. Right. But then you also have to think about fans who were probably going to play to going to the actual stadium, right. To, to watch that, that match. Um, and <laughs> kind of think about how plans like that are totally thrown by the wayside and seemingly not considered really for um, those who had to make the, were making the trips to those games. So it's a really difficult situation in general and every, te- every league is dealing with it in their own way, but um, it does feel like from the outset of what this rule was supposed to alleviate it's it's getting take advantage of as as you would expect any team to do by the way so it's yeah that's a like, that's like, a really some, good point i don't yeah, think someone else exclusive. someone else <laughs> that i was listening to today said it right like it, it was really more than anything naive of the Premier league to think that teams would <laughs> would you know do all this in good faith and yeah that's kind of where um they need to make a decision on on whether they're going to do something about it or just kind of be in this gray area for the rest of the season. Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, Rian, I guess it's time that we move on to other portions of the discussion, not necessarily related to COVID, but related to still seemingly not so positive news. Um, Have you heard what's going on with Everton? I'm just wondering if you've heard any, any new news you might, want to share or just bring up um i mean of course this is a team we're talking about now that has lost to norwich getting i think winning their last game since september i believe i forget which day in september but their last game under norwich oh oh yeah never mind sorry you're talking about everton forget about (laughs) norwich i'm talking about everton norwich norwich has won i think in november they won so yeah they've won more recently um yeah, so what the hell's going on in Everton? <laughs> uh, so you're right. Everton losing 2-1 to Norwich this past weekend. As Ellie said, Norwich's first win since November. Um, and putting them actually, what, one point off of 
off of survival right now. And like we already talked about, Burnley has about has four games in hand on Norwich. Burnley have only played 17 games, so who knows how those points will shake out. Um, but kind of a big a big win for Norwich, considering that Watford and Newcastle drew. So neither team really helped themselves much with the draw with a point there, and that was kind of big for Norwich. So props to them, and I still not don't think they're going to survive, but at least they're making this interesting. The other side of this, obviously, we, we talked about Norwich being kind of a charity club in the past um, few months. Everton kind of flipped that on its head this past weekend, where after being pretty terrible for the last month and a half, basically, um, like genuinely one of the worst teams in the league and find themselves now only six points off of 18th place or above their 18th place. They fired Rafa Benitez this past weekend. And it just kind of compounds on what was a pretty disappointing end to last season with Carlo Ancelotti leaving, um, coming back to Real Madrid at the literal drop of a hat. Um, I, ha- no, I, have th- I have thoughts. On- <laughs> no, I was just going to say I have thoughts on there's a very, very interesting narrative in how Carlo Ancelotti left to go back to Real Madrid versus how Rafa Benitez left. Because Rafa Benitez, okay, may not necessarily be a hot commodity in terms of, uh, you know, manager on the market right now, just because of the way that he's gone about things at Everton. But Carlo Ancelotti kind of always was. And I think a lot of people felt like he was punching below his his pay grade in some ways and now obviously he's doing very well at Real Madrid things are going fantastic for him but it almost felt like under Ancelotti Everton had reached the the best it could do with the squad it had right we were talking about a team that potentially at the beginning of last season were they a top four team they were playing like a top four team but since Rafa Benitez has come in it feels like the club has self imploded. Like it doesn't feel like there's necessarily a, a good footballing reason other than Rafa Benitez being like the one dependent variable that's changed. Yeah. I, I, you hit <laughs> great point. Like it's the Angelotti thing did feel like, wow, what a miracle this guy wanting to come and coach uh, Everton and and honestly, it feels now more like maybe it was kind of papering over some real yeah. deeper issues at the club, right? Like they've they've had no great luck since um it, it basically for four years now, four or five seasons at least, where it really feels like they're kind of in this like purgatory almost, right? A team that feels good too good to to easily finish eighth or ninth as they have like mid to finish solidly mid table as, as they have the last few years, they feel too good for that because of this club stature. But at the same time, a million miles away from being a team that could get into one of the European um, places and talking about the top seven, top seven at, at worst. Right. And, and they haven't looked really close to that, um, which is really disappointing. Like you think about the end of the Roberto Martinez time was pretty bad. He, he 
he obviously had his own issues with the club and then it it still hasn't gotten really any better since then. I believe it was Ronald Koeman that came in next. Um, I think uh, Marco throwback. Silva was, was another one. He yep. might've been, I think he might've been after Koeman also went terrible. <laughs> um, it, and then obviously like Ancelotti comes in and, and like I said, a miracle, but at the same time that team never could put together a, a consistent run of good performances outside of you know, like like you mentioned the first month or so of last season um and then naturally like the Rafa Benitez signing was a huge risk in itself considering Rafa Benitez's history um <laughs> as a coach in the Premier League see Liverpool like yeah yeah and and um it's, it's for the second time in his career he follows Carlo Ancelotti and it goes terribly for him and he's sacked within like seven months as he did at Real Madrid. Right. So it, that that's a funny coincidence here, but, but I, I'm not sure if it says more about Rafa Benitez or more about Everton, but that's, that's where they're, they're at right now with Everton. It, it's, it's kind of a disaster, right? Their director of medical, their head of recruitment, their manager of scouting, their director of football, and Luca Dean this past this past month all left during the time Rafa Benitez was the coach and all left for you no know, he, he he had a huge influence obviously on the Luca Dean transfer yeah and, and and um and I'm sure had an influence on the rest of the the departures so it's just a lack of coherent strategy at the team from top to bottom now and, and you have to look at it as more than just the coaches definitely more than just the managers um and it's really a, a deeper issue and and now we're seeing that Roberto Martins might be coming back and and then they're looking at they were looking at uh Frank Lampard and Wayne Rooney as, as potential managers to come in and it just feels like there's it feels like a not service. really a plan yeah yeah it really does feel like there is no plan and that's that's a really, really scary managerial thought that there is just quite literally no plan to how this is going to go. And I, I, I can't wrap my head around what actually goes on at Everton, but I like, I don't know if I've said this a lot and I probably should say it more often, but I really, really feel for the fans of Everton uh, when it comes to seeing stuff like this. Cause like there truly looks like there is no end in sight and I just can't imagine being in that position. I feel like I was in that position with Barcelona not too long ago, but like I knew change was coming. This is like, this is just depressing, man. There's no other way around it. Yeah, no, it it, it doesn't feel like, again, because they feel like in that purgatory zone where they're, again, they're not yeah. too, they're not big enough to, not too big to fail, I guess is the, is the phrasing I'm looking for. Like they're, they're not, exactly. I mean, <laughs> It, it will take smart decisions and they have spent a lot of money in the last five years. They're, they're basically going in a circle right now. Think about from when I believe Everton's new owner came in, it was probably a, about a couple months before Roberto Martinez got fired. And now it's looking like he might come back. It's a, it's a complete circle. So yeah, of course it, it, it money's not the issue. They spent a lot of that, but they need, they need to make smart decisions and um 
they don't quite have the stature to be able to keep making these decisions yeah and kind of just stay afloat right like that this they could easily see their two best players leave this summer. Like that's not off the table at all in Richarlison and, and Calvert-Lewin. So no, not at all. You would have no faith in, it's, in them being able to properly replace those players right now. That is scary. And the last thing I'll leave you with this thought. If you're a prospective manager, even interviewing for this job, why, why, why come? Like, what's your incentive? Like, yeah, I just, that's the worst I, part. That's also the possibly the worst part. This yeah. doesn't look, attractive to any smart manager um i mean i i think grand potter already took himself grand potter and wayne rooney i think already took themselves out of the running um by their comments that they've made in the last couple of days at press conferences saying that they're both very happy where they're at and yeah and the whole um, the whole running it back with nostalgia thing that started with zidane really like years ago that can't just be the new norm for the sake of being a new norm like there has to be a very explicit reason behind it. But like I said, I'm leaving yeah. with that thought. I think that's about as, as good a spot to stop off. <laughs> Before our like brains melt into oblivion. But yeah, let's let's move on to actually really interesting things. Um, no, no more sad news. Well, no more sad news if you're not a Chelsea. Yeah, it depends on who, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the Manchester City-Chelsea game, the early game at the weekend on Saturday. One nil win for City. I will say that goal by Kevin De Bruyne reminded me of how good he truly can be. Not how, not how good he is right now on form, but how good he truly can be. Because that man just shoved Conte off of him like he was a fly on his shoulder. And then to get the whip on the ball that he did with basically a ball that was closer to like basically underneath him with the power and precision was just, it was truly something special. So Rian, from an, uh, as objective view as you can, what did you think of this game? Who were you more impressed by? Or I guess, were you more impressed by city or more disappointed in kind of the, the lackluster performance that Chelsea put up, which we'll, we'll certainly get to uh, Lukaku anyway. I think first, like I, along with you and everyone else, probably who watched that game, was extremely impressed with that <laughs> that Kevin De Bruyne moment. Like it, it was it, it like reminded me a little bit, just the tiniest bit of um, Hazard's goal against Arsenal a few years back, where he went on the, yeah. that long run and it was and it was Coquelin who tried to take him down and kind of bounced off him. Yeah. Um, this one. Uh, the goal happened, and me and and my roommate Peter are both Chelsea fans watching it. They're just kind of like, oh, all right, well, <laughs> like you know, it, I I felt I felt really sad for Conte because you know we're watching that, and the only the only thing that you could do was try to take him out, and it's one of those you don't often see the tactical foul get attempted fail and then the exact thing that was trying to be prevented from that tactical <laughs> foul happened just like yeah. two seconds later um th that doesn't happen very much it's it's kind of it must be satisfying for the player to actually have it to get away from the tactical foul and then still do what they were, were hoping to do but 
I think if we're looking at uh, as a whole, um, even Manchester City and and even De Bruyne himself didn't play near their best. I, I don't. I didn't think um, in terms like individually for De Bruyne. I I thought that that was his best moment of the day, and and he w- didn't really hurt Chelsea outside of that. And, and Manchester City as a whole, you know, they had their, their best chance of the game outside of the goal came from. Really good team high pressing, obviously, which led to Grealish's one-on-one with with Kepa, who, who did well to save it there. Um, but as a team, like they they naturally controlled possession as you expect them to every time. But you know they only put up zero point seven on XG and really didn't have a lot of moments where it felt where it felt like they were just about to score. Um, they got to the box a lot as they as they always do, but um, finding that final ball and, and finding someone in a really good position to score was really the issue for for a city during the game, and that's where you have to I think, give credit to the defensive side of Chelsea. But we're talking about more impressed or more disappointed. I think more disappointed from Chelsea's attack point of view, like not not necessarily because they couldn't get control of the game per se, like like dominate possession or create a load of chances it was more the execution which was really really disappointing and uh i think we've seen we've seen a lot of that with this chelsea team really in the last two years where the execution sometimes in the in the final third is not consistent enough and especially with the the players that were chosen as the front three in that game um at least what, what did you see from the I think the deficiencies in Chelsea's attack, did, did it feel, did it feel systematic or did it feel more, do you feel like some players had a bad day or a few just had a bad day at the same time? Or I think it was a very, very even mix of both. And I'll start with the individuals, Marcus Alonso, Lukaku, and honestly, I'll, I'll leave it at those two. I think those two had probably the worst days out of this Chelsea team. Chelsea desperately need to do something about their left back position. Um, I don't know if they're going to do it in January. Luca Digne is off the table, obviously, but I don't know if they're going to do it in January. That to me is an individual or was an individual performance or performance that absolutely was rooted in kind of a, a structure that didn't really fit that, that player. And that's not necessarily a knock on Alonzo. Well, it is, but not like all on him is my point. Um, Lukaku, on the other hand, the way that Lukaku played as a hold-off type of number nine player, that's structural to me. That doesn't seem like a player or a manager that was trying to get the best out of Lukaku. Maybe, Obviously he was, but it wasn't done in the proper way in my opinion like he almost tried to turn Lukaku into Harry Kane and they're two very very different type of number nines and I just don't think that Lukaku had the support from the rest of the team to do exactly that maybe he could have but we just don't know that answer because he wasn't he wasn't granted any runs from deep right anytime that he got the ball within about two to three seconds again going back to the pep rule get the ball back in two to three seconds like he was dispossessed because he was on an Island and Chelsea didn't make those runs. So I think it was a mixture of some poor individual performances, but more so 
it just didn't seem like tactically this team was set up to, to succeed. Now, interesting, interestingly enough, I still think Chelsea had one or two chances in that second half, right? They had one or two chances to potentially, especially after Kevin De Bruyne's goal, right? Get one back. I think Ederson made a great save towards the end of the game, right? There were a few chances here and there, but the, the one thing that kind of changed the game, in my opinion, for Chelsea was actually the introduction of Timo Werner. And that's not something I ever thought I would say. But I think he made a massive impact in at least freeing up Lukaku from one additional center back. Like it literally just gave him space, like basically someone stuck in an unhealthy relationship that just needed to get away from everybody else. Like he he just needed that sort of space on the field. And I think Timo Werner's introduction gave him that. Um, I, I do think that there was a lot of talk. This will be my last thing that I'll say on this, but there's a lot of talk about how ch- this game defined the t- title race. If Chelsea don't win, let alone draw, title race is over. I think I'm of the opinion that that's probably true, but I feel like everyone is like mentally decided that that's the case. Like we haven't seen teams in the last four or five months of a season slip up three times. Like that's that's gonna happen. Manchester City are going to lose between now and the end of the season. And we're all going to come back and say, oh my God, could it happen? Like, yeah, of course it could happen. Of course they could lose the title still. It's very unlikely, but they very well could. So don't get your, don't get your hopes too far down. <laughs> I, I, I like that positivity. I like that. Positivity. It's, it's only for you, I by get, the way. <laughs> I, I, I agree with you. They definitely can lose. Yeah, how many games are we talking here? Maybe one. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> we're, we're talking maybe one game, and then everyone, and then Chelsea and or Liverpool have to be perfect for the rest of the season. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, th- I think going back to your comments on kind of the structural issues with the the attack, um, I agree in the extent that I think the f- the front three that was chosen wasn't necessarily. Um, didn't feel like the right way to hurt Manchester City, or at least in the ways that Chelsea did in those three games that they won at the end of last season against City, right? There there was no one outside of Lukaku who was willing to make a run in behind. And um, I was part of that is part of that is is having Mark Zalonzo there instead of Ben Chilwell, who would routinely try to make runs in behind for the center backs to play balls behind him on the left side. But as you said, with the team of Werner substitution, also someone like that, like um, team of Werner who, as we talked about from the champions league final, his runs, even if they're not played to him, forcing a center back to follow him, a, a one or two defenders sometimes to follow him just because of the threat that the pace kind of lens there so yeah I, I think I think there are a couple of issues with the lineup that I think was chosen specifically the front three there's not True. much you can do about playing Marcus Alonso at this point right but there isn't yeah um but I, I think there I think on the execution side of it there were a few chances in the first half at to play in a ball for for a counterattack I'm thinking specifically of uh of one chance that uh, Hakim Ziyech had maybe halfway through the first half 
where he could have played Lukaku in and misses the pass by 20, 30 yards. I mean, it's a ground pass. It's like a pretty simple ball. Um, And and not just him. I think Pulisic sometimes was very, very slow on releasing the ball from from good positions that he got into. Michael Cox really kind of hit that during on his column from this week. There were just quick decisions and or execution that was missed by all three of those those players up top. And Tuchel did specifically point out Lukaku, um, Lukaku's contributions from the game, which is slightly surprising to hear him <laughs> actually go after him. Um, who, who knows how much of it is, you know, frustration still from that interview. Because I'm it, sure it's, it's hard. It's recency bias. Yeah, it's in, it's in a hard place. It's. it's really hard to watch Lukaku, especially this past weekend and consider how upset he has been or how upset he was in the one in, in, in the interview it was you know what he said about the system and, and trying to get things to um work out for how he plays it, it's hard to do that and then kind of put up a very poor performance as he did this past weekend individually so look it was season lows for Chelsea in terms of touches in the penalty box and passes completed into the penalty box. And then also their second and third worst performances in terms of attacking third completed passes and touches in the attacking third. And a lot of that obviously has to do with the control that city can really wrestle in a game. But I, I do think a big part of it too, is that combination of not the right players probably to hurt the city side and the execution being poor so it's there's a broader issue perhaps um as we go on through the rest of this season where the the signings from the last couple of seasons of the attackers at least have not been necessarily good fits for each other right so that that's yeah that's that's interesting I, I like I like what you said about not being necessarily good fits for each other versus good fits for the rest of the team because I think there is there is a discrepancy between how the whatever front three Tuchel plays and how he actually wants them to play. I don't know how to necessarily verbalize that, but each profile of like basically a front three that Tuchel could put together, some combination of these players, right? Pulisic, obviously Lukaku. Timo Werner, Ziyech, even Hudson Adoy, like all those combinations of players are so different. And the only thing that I think that they really have in common is that their ability to find passing channels in between the half spaces specifically is really what sets those wing, those wingers apart. And because you have a striker like Lukaku, it makes your life a lot easier. So even if, some of that those passing lanes are not as open or they're not as you know accurate I think Lukaku can still make up for some of that just because of how good of a player he is but outside of that I mean their positioning is so different their interior their ability to come inside right it's it's very different so it's a good point I never really thought about it like that yeah that was a very good point all right and I think from there at least the other side of a different side of London and then obviously Manchester big results this weekend for West Ham and Manchester United. Rian, let me tell you a little story. I decided that I was going to watch the United Villa game in its entirety. 
something I don't do, watch United in its entirety because it's United. I decided to sit down, watch the game while I was talking to a friend of mine on FaceTime and first goal goes in, wonderful, wonderful finish from Bruno Fernandez. Second goal goes in, even better finish, arguably. <laughs> the um, first the first finish was, was funny more than wonderful, right? Oh, that's, I'm, that's I'm sorry. Yes, I'm talking about the second one twice, actually. That's a good point. The first one, yeah, the first one I didn't really think much of. Um, I was really sad for Emiliano Martinez. Like, I was really sad because he's very much, like, just – He's such a someone you can really support, at least from my yeah. perspective. He, he was begging uh, for the offside. From, yeah, he wasn't. Get he that. was like, please, please. No, I, I couldn't no, have, no, I didn't no. do that. I didn't. I couldn't have meant that. He. I don't think Cavani was even offside. So yeah, it, he wasn't was even. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. So beyond that, the second goal that Bruno Fernandez scored was brilliant. Um, just a wonderful, wonderful finish. And then I watch as a man who is still contracted by my club comes onto the field within about six minutes, gets an assist, wonderful buildup to the first goal, even better buildup to the second goal, which saw main man Coutinho score again against Manchester United. I, I was very conflicted in that moment. More, more happy than not, but I was very conflicted because I was confused to see Coutinho play so well. And then I realized, wait, he's playing in the number 10 position for the first time in four years. So that changes things. And secondly, I was very happy because United dropped two points. I don't really care whether or not Ronaldo was on the pitch, but they dropped two points and it was wonderful. It was beautiful. And Villa deserved the point. Let's be very clear. They could have very well won this game. They deserved something out of it. Um, so that's my story. Listen, I didn't say it was a wonderful, like a great story. I'm just telling you it was a story. So that's where I'm at. Yeah, it's, it was, we like turned the time machine back. Like we hopped into <laughs> a time machine. I mean, a very weird one because it had <laughs> Steven Gerrard as the, as the coach. And Bizarre, Coutinho yeah. As a, as the midfielder um, at Aston Villa, like it's we're like living in bizarro world right now. If if someone was in the coma like six years ago and saw <laughs> all of this, like yeah, and throw on top <laughs> of that, Rafa Benitez coaching and getting sacked by Everton, like <laughs> it's it's all just crazy, a crazy yeah. weekend. Um, yeah, but just speaking from yeah the United the Aston Villa side, let's let's give them the credit first. You're right. Honestly, when that second Bruno Fernandez goal happens, it's completely against the run of play, right? That that first the first half was probably probably the best performance for United under under Ralph Ragnick since maybe that probably. first game. Get, like yeah. it, maybe that first game against Crystal Palace where they pressed well for like 30 minutes for the first time ever, and and we all kind of went crazy. Um, they, they did it for like a whole half this time and controlled the game much better than they have in this season. Let's maybe this whole season. Um, but then the second half was just totally flipped and Villa just really dominated the midfield in the second half, especially when Coutinho came on. Yeah. I, I, I really, really really impressed with um villa's other midfielder jacob ramsey he's 18 years old he was 
everywhere. And he looked miles better than anyone in Manchester United's midfield. Not something that's hard to do, but yes. True, <laughs> true, true. But I think just like his combination of very, obviously very quick feet, but also like the pace that he runs at the ball with, it's it's really impressive. And he and Coutinho were just causing fits <laughs> to, to that Manchester United midfield. And it kind of all comes back to I think something that, something that I'm thinking about writing about for, for the next newsletter, but United keep playing with this, this system with two center midfielders who, as we've talked about before, like almost no combination of Manchester United's two center mids are going to be good enough. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really difficult when you play a formation that has two of them and they have to cover so much ground while also being able to control the game when they have the ball and yeah. keep tempo. Matic struggles, obviously, on the covering <laughs> covering defensively at this point in his career. And Fred, as much as he can do that covering, he can't cover for both of them. Definitely, he's not the only person that could cover for Nemanja Matic in the last five years was N'Golo Kante. So... That's a really that's, good point. That's, like, really that's good the point. only that's the only time in the last five to six years we've seen that work well, where Nemanja Matic is one of two center midfielders. It's really the issue of they can't control a game when they have the ball. Like at any point, it, it doesn't matter what the score is. Like they, it's like we. I, I've harped on it. I feel like so much this season, just the ability to control and control games when you're up specifically like and definitely when you're up by two goals like just killing a game not necessarily going for the killer ball every two minutes as bruno does from from time (laughs) as Bruno loves to do like going for the killer ball at all times that's that's not controlling a game and fred's not good enough at passing and nemanja matic is is not athletic enough anymore really so all of those factors make it a great, great day for Villa. Um, yeah. who, like you said, definitely should be somewhat disappointed to not win that game because they were much, much better than, than Manchester United. And from a broader point of view, kind of wash the way West Ham's blemish from this past weekend where they're in a thriller with Leeds. It's a really fun game. Um, losing 3-2 to Leeds um, at home in London Stadium. And after three straight wins, they have their first loss um, this in the new year and kind of lose a chance to gain some ground on Arsenal and, and Tottenham, who obviously didn't play this past weekend. So at least I'm going to throw this question to you, actually. Right now, not you know obviously taking the squads into account but just right now on pure form on your trust in one the coaches being able to come up with good game plans and and manage their squad for the rest of the season two your confidence in the players executing and being able to carry out those game plans and and put together the performances necessary for you. Who do you think is more likely to finish in the top four West Ham or Manchester United? 
So I just want, while you say that, I just want to point out that anything in the table right now is extremely misleading, right? In terms of their current position. So I'm not going to, I'm not even going off of that. I'm going almost purely based off of form and basically the fact that they're very close to the table, (laughs) close to the top four. Like that's what I'm going off of. And if I have to answer that, honestly, I still think that United are probably the team with the slightly slightly more talent, right? And I've always said this, I'm going to say it again, talent shines through over the course of a season. However, I've been very, very impressed with how West how organized West Ham are as a team, right? And just because you have multiple very, very talented individuals on a field like United do, I think that they still consistently look lost in how they play. And the reason why they look lost too, and I think this has been more emphasized, is that they haven't had any specific individual really step up and be able to finish off games. Obviously, Ronaldo is that is that individual and was not playing against Villa, but he even to to a degree, he's done that in the Champions League, Atalanta, right? Like he he is he's done that this season but not as consistently as I think United need, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean it falls on Ronaldo. I'm very much of the opinion that it does not, actually. But without such a strong individual force, I think that West Ham are in slight favorites, in my opinion, like very, very slight favorites to potentially finish top four. Now, again, this could all be – this could all change when someone like Bruno, for example – start scoring six goals in six games and all of a sudden it's a totally different conversation. I, cause that, that is also entirely possible, but for right now, I've been very impressed with West Ham and how they played. And, and as United continue to look lost, I don't think that those projections are necessarily going to change. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah. I, I, I do tend to fall on the same side with Elias when it comes to the talent winning out stuff and and I I just yeah you're I'm gonna be hard-pressed to not still say Manchester United um it's just ridiculous that I'm considering West Ham it's just ridiculous that we're that it's that it's at the point that it is right um and I I still think back to you know exactly what I was just talking about the midfields of these teams of these four teams specifically right that um have a chance to finish in the top four this season in arsenal tottenham west ham and manchester united and it's just like of all of those teams the best midfielder like center midfielder not talking about necessarily an attacking one or that kind of weird hybrid whatever we're calling paul pogba right now <laughs> um just talking about a pure center midfielder who can kind of do both sides at least or can control a game the best one of them is on West Ham right and Declan Rice like I, I'd, I'd be hard it'll be hard for me to pick anyone else out of those four teams that that uh that I just mentioned and we've seen how good that dynamic is with him and Thomas Suchek and um we've seen how reliable that those two have been for West Ham. I know they didn't play 
with Suchek this past weekend, and uh, that could always have a that could be a good reason why they weren't able to get a win against Leeds. But yeah, it's it's I'm probably going Manchester United, but it but it it feels like if someone was betting out there and you had the choice <laughs> between the two, you your value that you're probably going to get for West Ham is it might be worth it. So I'll just leave it at that. But um, yeah, like I said, and the, the 538 odds have West Ham at, as 11% chance to finish in the top four. Manchester United at 10%. So who knows? Best of luck to them. They're going to need it. The way that things look, they're really going <laughs> to need it. They have not solved major problems I mean, in this to, team. But... To think that we'd be this far into the season and, and a reputable predicting market would say that a 10% chance of finishing in the top four yeah. is, is a conversation in itself, but agreed, agreed, entirely agreed. But until United get things right, it's going to be a long season for them. So yeah, with that, Rian, I know we normally cover the La Liga portion of what's going on in Spain towards the, the end, but not much happened in La Liga over the last week or so. The Supercopa, which we'll talk about some of the controversy there, how it sh- kind of sh- shaked out, um, as well as a very bizarre incident in one of the Copa del Rey games with Sevilla and Real Batiste. Um, but in the interest of time, we'll give you all some time back. And we're going to give yeah. you some time. Go grab a coffee. Do whatever you might do. And I think Rian has one last thing that he wants to yeah, say, what, probably it, about just, AFCON. Yeah, yeah. I was like, one the AFCON update for this week. Um, so we are two games through in AFCON um, for just about every team. I, I think actually today tied it out. Everyone's at two games now. Um, yep. A couple, a couple of things to highlight. Cameroon were the only team in the, up until say, th- I think about two or three days ago, um, maybe last Thursday, no other team had scored two goals in any single game. And the Cameroon did it in their first couple games and, and were the first team to score. They scored two goals in their two games. And those were at that point, the only two games that had um, a team score two plus goals. That's, that's changed a bit since then. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't want to talk about the the second game that they played just for the record. <laughs> um, but yes, a game which Ethiopia started great, by the way. True. True. Yeah. Getting that first goal. Um, but, but Cameroon sit on top of their group. Uh, there's been disappointments all around um, for, for most of the tournament. Nigeria has looked really good. The biggest upset so far, I think, has been Algeria. Algeria, yeah. The team who came into this game, came into this, actually, I think this past game, actually, on 33, I want to say, 33 straight. It was, um, the, I believe, the longest unbeaten run yeah. in, the, in the world. Yep. And I think they were just a couple off of Italy or... Um, or a couple off of an older Brazilian team and, and Italy, I think has the record at, at the moment. Um, but in any case, yeah, they lose their second game to Equatorial Guinea uh, or not. Sorry. That was Ivory coast. They, they lose their second game. Ivory coast who also look very, very good. And I'll just add <laughs> the front line for the Ivory coast right now is stacked. Like I didn't realize how stacked it was. Yeah. Yeah, their midfield looks nice too. Kessier and, and Sangare look really good as well. They had Nicola Pepe popping up with a great goal in there yeah. in that game. But but even they drew, uh, I think Sierra Leone, while Algeria did lose to, to Equatorial Guinea. So those are two huge upsets um, there. And 
Algeria just, I think, won the Arab Cup coming into yep. this tournament, and they did that without Riyad Mahrez. <laughs> and also, they are the defending AFCON champions as well. So, a huge upset potentially in the in the makings there. Perhaps, um, perhaps. Yeah, so, so just a shout out there, I think, to Cameroon and Nigeria. I think, of, for me, looked at, looked the best in their first couple games. Agreed. Agreed. Well, with that, then, can I let them go? Is that yeah. all right with you? Yeah, I think I think that's just about it. But no, that's fair. By that's next by next fair. week, I think it'll be I think we'll be coming up on the knockout games and that should get that should get fun. Agreed. I think it's going to get very fun in AFCON. Um, so as always, stay tuned and we'll come back with updates. But as always, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week and uh, stay safe. Thanks, guys. Thank you.